At the time this episode releases, engagement season will have officially begun. So happy Thanksgiving, and best of luck to you if you're considering popping the question to your significant other. But before you commit to sealing the deal, I want you to hear this expert speak on how so many people go so wrong. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Nancy Perpall. Nancy was a critical care nurse who transitioned all the way over to law, becoming an attorney. Despite her initial plan to be a malpractice and defense attorney, she ended up spending 34 years as a divorce attorney, taking apart marriages. She's here today to try and save people from the heart-wrenching pain of going through an unnecessary divorce, even if that means avoiding getting married to the person you think you love in the first place. We discuss everything from questions you need to ask before getting married, to prenuptial agreements, love addiction, and even into things I'd never heard of, like premarital counseling and some crazy divorce technicalities. Heads up, I would not call this an explicit episode, because the things we talk about are very technical, but we do discuss sex a fair amount. Also, just before getting into this episode, I want to make a slightly selfish announcement. As of today, right now, while recording, I'm celebrating my 30th birthday. I'm not where I saw myself even a year ago, but I'm so glad that this show has been here through all of it. And my host, Podbean, has given me one of the greatest gifts I could ever get without them even knowing. They've listed me as a featured podcast. That means I'm going to have even more eyes and ears on me from around the world, pushing me and this show to be better. Anyway, enough about me. You can stick around for the end of the episode to hear more about Podbean and how you can get your own show on there like mine. But for now, let's make sure marriage is the right decision before divorce becomes the only option. Welcome to the show, Nancy Purple. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invite. Yes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the people listening? My name is Nancy Purple, spelled P-E-R-P-A-L-L. I was a critical care nurse uh, before becoming an attorney. I Many people ask, why did you go from nursing to law? So I'll answer that question right now. Um I wrote a textbook with some people from University of Pennsylvania. I was practicing in Pennsylvania at the time. And um, I had written, it was called Advanced Concepts in Clinical Nursing. And we had written the protocols that hospitals should, you know, uh, invest in to make patient care better. It was published by J.B. Lippincott. It was you know, very widely received in all the nursing schools. It was a mandatory textbook. Many hospitals were incorporating it, but the hospital that I worked in, in the emergency room, they were like, well, you know, we, we think, you know, we'll, we'll think about it, we'll study it, but we're really not sure. So the hospital had just hired a nurse who had become an attorney to do, you know, sort of like the 
uh, evaluate the different departments and make sure that there was no potential malpractice. So I approached her in the cafeteria and I said, look, you know, <laughs> nationally, this book is being incorporated into nursing schools. Hospitals are adopting what I'm asking administration to consider and they won't do it. She looked up at me in between bites and said, become a lawyer, you'll have power. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to law school um, and I um, intended, you know, after I got some training as a young attorney, I intended to go back into hospital administration. But what happened was I was hired to do defense malpractice. Um, my first day on the job, I got 75 files piled on my desk for divorce because I was told I was a woman, this is 1984, and divorces are things women should do. It was an all-male practice, except for me. So I did defense malpractice and I did divorce, and I worked very hard at it um, because I went to the senior um, managing uh, partner and I said, you know, I was hired to do defense malpractice. I really don't want to do divorce work. And he put his finger an inch from my nose and said, you're not going to make it here. Well, I'm in the middle of seven kids. And guess what? That's all you have to tell me is that I can't do something. So I became um, a very successful while I was doing defense malpractice, a divorce attorney. And when they lost the contract to represent the physicians, I had a fallback. So I left the firm, opened my own firm. And 34 years later, I'm trying to educate your audience to avoid what I did for 34 years. And that was take apart marriages. And having been divorced myself, I, I want to really try to help people avoid the mistakes that you make entering into a marriage. A marriage is a long-term contract. And it's a contract you can get out of. People get out of contracts every day. People, Millions of people get married and divorced in this country every year. But it's not without heart-wrenching pain in the people who are going through the divorce, especially if they have children. And the last 10 years of my practice, I began representing children in their divorces that I had represented their parents in the custody disputes in which the child who is now in my office seeking a divorce was the subject of the custody dispute. And I said to myself, when I retire, my life's mission is going to stop, try to stop this cycle of divorce because the impact of divorce on children in the 80s, when I got divorced for the first time, the, the, the theory was, <clears throat> well, if the parents are happy, the children will be happy. That is BS. That is not what happens. Children suffer terribly during a divorce. The, the research now is that when a child goes through trauma in their developmental years, and that means truly up until you're 21 years old, if you go through trauma associated with your family of origin, feelings of abandonment happen, even if you're 21 years old, there are many feelings that occur in, a, in someone and those feelings are replicated in the adult relationships. 
So you don't just leave what happened to you in your youth behind you. When you're at the altar and you say, I do, that doesn't dissipate. You bring it with you on the honeymoon. You bring it with you for your lifelong commitment and how you've learned things like conflict resolution, how to love, how to forgive, um, you know, all of these things. And the biggest one is how to communicate. That that stays with you the rest of your life. And so what I like to try to do is explain to people the change in divorce in this country. And it's been under great change, social change, economic change, and legal change for the last 30 years. The traditional model of of marriage was usually the husband, the male, would be the breadwinner, the person who acquired the assets, and the woman would be the one who to produce the children, to keep the home fires burning, to make the house. And she didn't question, or if she did, you know, there may be domestic violence in it, but the standard was that you did not question your husband. He was the king of the realm. When he came home, everyone towed the line. When he said something was going to happen, it happened. And so that was the traditional model. But what has evolved is now the romantic model where it's not, people are no longer getting married for an economic reason, which was the traditional marriage. The traditional marriage was that if you had a proposal and the guy could afford providing you with a center hall, two-story colonial, he was a good catch. And regardless of things that you may not have liked about him, hey, you were still in Schaefer City because you had someone who was going to support you the rest of your life. And women were not expected to work outside the home. That drastically changed, changed with the women's movement. And people began wanting love, wanting connection, wanting romance in their relationships. I don't know about, I don't know about you, but I certainly started looking for that after I got divorced I got married under the old traditional model where my ex-husband went to my father for my hand in marriage. My father, you know, cross-examined him about whether he was going to be able to support me. <laughs> and then he gave his approval. But my the second time, it was all up to me. I don't know about you. What about you? Are you looking for a romantic relationship in your life? I mean, I am not, but I do definitely see, you know, all of those things where it's like people making the same, same mistakes as their parents and just kind of wandering into things like, you know, the people I know that are looking at relationships so often I hear like, well, I just don't want to be alone. That is, that's what the research has shown. And, you know, unfortunately, um, there are questions that you really need to ask yourself before you get engaged. And then after you're engaged, you really need to ask some real hard questions before you walk up the aisle and say, I do, and commit yourself legally for the rest of your life. I mean, if you're going to partner up and live to somebody with someone, there may be some legal entanglements if you buy a property, you know, in joint names, or if you uh, put one person on your life insurance policy, that's a whole different situation than I'm actually going to discuss with your audience today. I'm really focusing on divorce. Um, and there are 
Um, there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of resources on the internet about questions you should ask, how you should do it. And um, interestingly, in the June of 2022 uh, magazine, Brides Magazine, of all magazines, Brides Magazines, uh, did an article about um, the 10 best premarital counseling uh, available, and you can find that on the internet. And they're recommending premarital counseling. I strongly recommend premarital counseling. And the Gottman Institute, uh, which is really the best research institute and vehicle in terms of relationships, um, talks about the eight things that you really need to discuss before you decide to get married and or engaged. And the first one is about trust and commitment. You know, Mark Twain said that each of us has a dark side of the moon. And I think trying, you know, before you really figure that this guy or woman is the one I want to move in with, the one I want to marry, the one I want to spend the rest of my life with, you really have to ask them, what's the dark side of your moon? We all have a dark side. You know, what are your fears? What is it that may become an issue in our relationship, which goes to you know, trust and commitment. It also goes in that sort of discussion with someone, there's a real bonding of intimacy. When you bear your soul to another person and you tell them about the dark side of your moon, you are letting them in and they feel it. And Helen Fisher, who is an anthropologist, research neuroscientist at Rutgers University, studied the three romantic stages of uh, relationships when you're falling in love. And the first is governed by what's a, a hormone, dopamine. Dopamine is activates the same area of your brain as, um, as cocaine. So when you are really in that passionate feeling and that feeling of high about somebody and you're obsessing over them and you're you're wondering, you know, I, I really want to be with this person. How can I attract this person? That's the dopamine in your brain working. And that's the human survival instinct. We were we were um, meant as homo sapiens to reproduce. That's our purpose to survive and reproduce and keep the species going. And that's what Mother Nature did. Mother Nature gave us dopamine and dopamine gets secreted when there is novelty and there's risk. And if you were drunk, you could not legally enter into a legal contract. But dopamine has the same effect on the brain. And we allow millions of people every year <laughs> to walk up the aisle and commit themselves when they're drunk on dopamine. And dopamine doesn't really last. It can't last. The brain recalculates in order to preserve itself from that level of excitement. Yeah, it sounds very much like the old phrase, love drunk. Oh my God, yes, yes. I actually haven't heard that, but it's it totally dovetails with this theory. And this is this is research. This is not somebody, you know, science fiction, you know, Frankenstein research. This is verified research throughout the world. 
that dopamine is what drives the human species to reproduce. And that's why you become attracted to people. And, um, you know, the three stages are that first lustful, you know, romantic stage where, you know, your sexual prowess is coming out and you really want to sexually engage with this person. And then the second stage is a little bit less, it's more of a romantic stage. And that's when the serotonin starts in your body. And it's more of a happiness stage. It's more where you think, yeah, I mean, we're going to have sex, just great sex the rest of our life. And we're going to be happy the rest of our life. That's serotonin talking. And then, of course, you know, after you get married, there's a hormone called oxytocin that helps you put up with the person that you've decided you want to marry and have kids with and have sex with the rest of your life. So oxytocin is that bonding. I think most most women who've become mothers have heard about oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding hormone. And that's the hormone that keeps regenerating in happy marriages. Over and over again, there's that intimacy. Um, oxytocin is stimulated by intimate relationships, a hug, sexual intercourse, a kind word. When you come home from the office and you've been beaten up throughout the day, emotionally at work, and you get a non-judgmental look. Somebody puts their cell phone down and stops looking at the screen and looks into your eyes and says, I got your back. That oxytocin is just like, that fills you up and it recommits you to that person. On the other hand, if you come slithering in from a horrible day feel beaten up by the world, feel worthless, useless, stupid, ugly, and everything else, and the other person doesn't put their cell phone down, keeps looking at the ball game or the cell phone or the computer, and you know you sit down and you say, you know, I really had a crappy day. And they don't turn their eyes to you, they roll their eyes. Take a big hint from that because your relationship is in big trouble. And you really need to decide if you want to turn that ship around or have the hard conversation about we are not in a right place. That was so disrespectful. And I mentioned that Gottman Institute, and we'll go through a few more of the things that they say you should ask in a minute, but the biggest predictor of divorce and I mean, this is over 30 years of research. And John Gottman and his wife are nationally, internationally revered as the, the most prominent, best researchers on romance relationships. And their, their finding is that contempt for another, for the spouse, is the best predictor of divorce that there is. And in my own practice, I have found that. I found contempt is really um, the death knell of a relationship. And you really need to address it. Interesting. So how long does it take? I'm sure there's a spectrum, but like on average, how long does it take to get from that first stage 
you know, the dopamine rush, that love drunk, all the way through serotonin and into this like maintenance stage? So glad you asked that. Um, dopamine only lasts between 18 and 24 months. Okay. And it dissipates in your body. That's the way we are made. Meanwhile, the serotonin can start. And even though you may have, you know, mad passionate sex at night, you still still feel a sense of happiness, connection during the day. That's the serotonin. And that kicks in. It could kick in forever if the couple stimulates it correctly. As I said, serotonin is, is stimulated when you feel a connection, when you feel a bond, the same thing with oxytocin. So, you know, my parents were married for 65 years. Not that they didn't have their ups and downs, but they were always playful with each other. Like I will, rem I, I probably was like eight years old and my father worked in New York City. We lived in Long Island and um, we're sitting at breakfast and he had to go get catch the train. He kisses my mother on the mouth and says, I forgot to take the garbage out. We started laughing instead of being offended. She started, she burst out laughing and smacked him on the butt. And, and he kissed her on the mouth again and said, okay, see you at six. You know, I mean, it, you know, if you've got to have humor in your marriage. You've got to have playfulness. And um, that brings me to the second thing that they say you should have, which is conflict resolution. Before you get married, you have to talk about really how are we going to resolve conflicts? Because let's face it, marriage is all about fights. I mean, no two people are alike. We're still not cloning human beings, although I think we're cloning sheep. You come from different backgrounds, different neighborhoods, different socioeconomic classes, and now different cultures and different races. You're not going to have the same infrastructure. You're not going to have the same internal scaffolding about how to reach the top and how to resolve a conflict. So you've really got to make sure that the two of you, frankly, I think you should have one huge fight before you decide to get engaged. Because if you haven't had one huge fight to see how you're going to resolve that conflict, you're in for rude awakening if you move in together or you get married. Because so many times, so many young men that I've represented said, I knew I was making a mistake, but she asked me to get married, you know, she want you know she was desperate. Her biological clock was ticking, and she wanted kids, and she wanted a house and family. And they get married. I don't know what's your experience uh, of all the, the you you know you're a guy. <laughs> what do your guy friends say? You know if if their relationships break up, what do they tell you? Yeah, I mean that is uh, most of my guy friends, which like, that's part of why I asked the question, like how long do these things last? Cause I see a lot of people drop off after like two years, right? It's before their third year. And they're like, well, we were going so well. And then the ones that make it through that kind of period or the ones that rush really fast into things all kind of say the same thing where they're like, well, she kept telling me she wanted to get married. And so I figured like, this will make her happy. So I just did it. Like, I just Big proposed. Mistake. Yeah. Big mistake. You know, I, um, I've i written a novel, a debut novel. It's called Around Witch, 
all things bend. And it's about that very subject. It's about relationships. It's about a young man breaking off a relationship and all the consequences that follow. It's about him realizing it's not about finding the person, the right person, your soulmate. It's about being the right person for the relationship. You have to be the right person for the relationship. If you're not the right person for the relationship, you're not going to be able to be playful. You're not going to be able to be sexually satisfied. You're not going to be able to sacrifice. And you're not going to be able to really have that fun adventure and novelty. Fun adventure and novelty is what re-stimulates the hormone dopamine. Many couples who are on the verge of divorce don't need a divorce. They need a diversion. They need to, they need novelty if they truly love each other. Now, if there's domestic violence or emotional abuse, that's a whole different situation. I'm not talking about that. Get out, run, do not walk to the nearest exit. But if you loved this person, if you long for that dopamine high, you can get it again. You absolutely get it again. You know, I have fallen out of love and in love with my present husband. I don't know how many times. It's just normal. And when I feel that, like, you know, I'm not feeling that rush. I'm not feeling the, you know, the excitement I had for him. We, tr we do novel things. We change a routine. Even going to a different store together to buy groceries is a novelty. You support each other. I mean, going to a different restaurant, you know, we tend, you know, people tend to fall into routines, break the routine and your dopamine will be stimulated. If it's not, then that's a big red flag. But um, one thing that I think a young couple really needs to talk about are dreams. Very few young people really talk about their dreams realistically and practically. I mean, if you're not talking about what are your secret desires, like what do you really, I know you, you're doing your job, you're great at your job, but you don't really seem that happy all the time with your job. What What is your dream? What's your fantasy? You know, do you want to own a franchise? Do you want to change your job? I mean, that needs to be discussed because if you're a different personality type and all you're looking for is the center hall, two-story colonial, and you want to stay put and you don't want to move and you don't want to change your lifestyle to sacrifice the dream that this other person has, you know, we all know what's going to happen. The relationship is not going to last. And, you know, fun adventure, exploring dreams. The other thing, the real key thing um, that Gottman's find is an absolute and essential hard discussion is family. I mean, there is no question that kids cause relationships, a dissatisfaction in the relationship. At first, they cause dissatisfaction. You know, when you're 80 years old and you need them to take care of you, you may be satisfied with them. But a lot happens between the time they're born and, and that event. And of course, you know, we all love our children. We all love our infants. But the hormonal changes that happen in both the male and the female 
um, because the research is showing for the first time, I think that in the last 10 years, they've been researching young men, young fathers who have postpartum depression. And they find the same thing in young fathers that they find in young mothers who have postpartum depression. And that is an extremely low level of oxytocin. Normally, when a, a woman has a child, the oxytocin spikes and stays spiked for about a year. I mean, it stays up there. But if it isn't being manufactured, if for whatever reason the oxytocin is very low, you know, from a hereditary, a dietary, a stress level, that undercuts that bonding. And women get postpartum, uh, you know, unfortunately go through postpartum depression. So do men. Many men feel detached, you know, underappreciated, underrecognized after a baby is born. And it's not that they're bad fathers. It's just that they're going through hormonal changes. Um, I mean, that's a whole digression, but, um, you know, that really needs to be discussed. Do you want kids? Are you prepared for what may happen to us hormonally? You know, and who's going to do the chores? You know, am I going to take, you know, three months off? Am I going to take a year off? How is that going to impact our, our earnings? Which is the other thing you have to discuss. Money. How are, are you a spendthrift? Are you a saver? Do you think we should have an emergency fund? Are we going to combine our assets? Are we going to keep assets separate? The American um, Association of Matrimonial Lawyers did a study recently and found a 51% increase in request for prenuptial agreements by millennials. Do you find that interesting? I, I do think that's very interesting because, I mean, the other thing I always hear is like millennials have the lowest you know ownership of any other group. So it's interesting that you would see more prenups from that group than from others. Well, you know, again, I think that that's a myth. You know, millennials are um, at least the millennials. And of course, this is professional millennials. But there are a lot of millennials who are electricians who have their own businesses, uh, plumbers who have their own business, uh, home builders. I mean, millennials of all type are not nearly you know, the losers that these myths often paint them as. They're extremely bright. They're more educated than we were. Um, and they understand they've witnessed the impact of divorce, if not in their nuclear family, in their friends. You know, you said a few minutes ago, you know, like two years later, they want a divorce. You're absolutely right. The average American marriage is now seven years. I mean, if you see what's happening, okay, look at it this way. If you got on a plane and you heard the pilot say, we have a 50% chance of reaching the destination, what would you do? I mean, I'm not That's, staying on the flight. That is the same. That is the same percentage of having a successful marriage in this country presently. It may be 47.9%. People say, oh, it's not 50%. Yeah, it's 49.7%. Yeah. 
or 47, depending upon the researcher. But it's a, there's a close enough to 50% chance that you are going to get a divorce if you're getting married today. And the interesting thing is that divorces among 50-year-olds have doubled. Divorces among 60-year-olds have tripled. Wow. But, um, you know, as I said in the very beginning, um, people are no longer looking um, for an economic model of marriage. And they're looking for the romantic marriage. And um, people in their 50s, and it's pretty much equal between men and women who are seeking divorce in their 50s and 60s. They're looking for that dopamine rush again. Um, if you've ever really been wildly, passionately in love, then you know it feels the same way when you're high on cocaine. And it's addictive. And in my practice, I had this one guy who's very wealthy. And I handled his first divorce. And he came in um, several years later and he, he met the real woman of his dreams. Okay, this was really, this is going to be the one. So I talked to him about, you know, having a prenuptial agreement. And he said, ah, you know, it takes the romance out of the marriage. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It, it does not take the romance out of a marriage. It puts the chances of you having a successful marriage over the 50% into the 100%. If you have honest discussions and you know what you're getting into. But he wouldn't listen to me. So he gets divorced again a few years later. Then he comes back again, if you can believe it, for his, he's getting married again for his third marriage. And I said, and I said, will you listen to me this time? You know, do a prenuptial agreement. Seriously, if you want to leave her, you know, $4 million, if you get divorced after five years, you've got it, do it. I mean, I'm not trying to stop anything here if you're really in love with her, but this is ridiculous. He said, oh, I like the chase. Do you understand what I'm saying? He wanted that dopamine rush again. He wanted to feel that high. And he truly was. And it's the same thing with love addicts. I mean, they're they're so high on dopamine, you know, that they can't, they just are looking for, they need that rush again over and over. And um, it doesn't last. No matter how you slice it, it doesn't last. So you really need to work through these questions and and see, I mean, is this something, are we sexually compatible enough that if at some point for some medical reasons or orthopedic reason or whatever, or just, you know, you're not interested sexually anymore, can I live without sex? And a lot of 50, you know, year olds and 60 year olds are saying, no, I can't live without sex. No, I, I, this is not how I want to live the next 10 or 20 years. And because we are long lived now, I mean, it was use, there was recently research study that said 40% of the people between 72 and 85 have nothing wrong with them. They may be on medication prophylactically for cholesterol or whatever, but truly they can be active, they can be sexually active, um, they can travel, they can do whatever they want. And if you're not with somebody who is really steer, you know, looking towards that, you know, to stimulate that dopamine again, to travel, to do something novel, 
and you're sitting there on the plane waiting for it to take off, right? I mean, you're willing to take the risk because you want that risk makes you happy. And dopamine is a risk hormone. Yeah. So, so this all kind of like circles back to, I feel like I have heard this dozens of times where they're like, well, that'll change once we get married. Like the amount of times I've heard that thought where they're like, oh, they don't want kids now, but you know, after we get married, they're going to want kids. It's don't worry about it. Or, you know, like the same thing with their career. Like, well, they don't want to leave now, but once it, once I start getting the opportunity, they're going to want to give up everything for my career. Like I hear that same thought over and over and I'm like, things don't just change like that. They absolutely don't. They don't. And, you know, I, you know, in my book, um, and, and the title around which all things bend is about love. And what you just said is exactly what the book is about. How far are you willing to bend to get love? How far are you willing to bend to give love until you break? And let's face it, no matter how much we love somebody, at some point in our relationship, we tend to have a breaking point, you know, where you think, I don't know, do I really be, want to be with this person the rest of my life? And if you say to yourself, yeah, I really do love them, and you're willing to do the work and the novelty and really fall in love with the same person all over again, you can do it. But the question is, do you want to put in the time, the effort, or the energy? Um, I think too many people give up too early. They don't understand that they're being driven by a lot of hormones that they have, they can control and they can replenish. I mean, so many people are obsessed with diets. And my new book, um, which is coming out in 2023, is called The Malnourished Marriage, Five Essential Emotional Nutrients for a Healthy Relationship. And in that book, I use the metaphor diet for what a relationship needs to be to stay healthy. And I compare communication to water. Water can either flow or can crash. Words can either flow or they can crash. If in an argument, if you start spewing personal insults, which you, you know in your heart of hearts is going to cut to the core core of the person that you're having the argument with, your spouse, that's like throwing acid on their heart. It'll scar up, but it's never going to unscar. You know, unkind words have a way of cutting to the quick almost more than any eye rolling or anything else you can do. So I talk about communication. I talk about, you know, talk to me as if you love me, you know, giving examples about that. And then I go down, you know, protein's the building block. So it's like sex. And um, speaking of sex, that's what you really need to talk about prior to marriage. And, you know, we talk about, you know, the three Fs. What are your feelings about sex? Like, do you think this is just going to happen the rest of our relationship? Or do you think we have to do something novel? Do you think we have to work on it? Do you think we have to go out for date nights? You know, are we willing to make a commitment, even if we have children? Are we willing to do adult things to preserve the family? 
so that the kids have a family unit to grow up in. So many people forget about the fact that they need to make that commitment to each other that they made when they got married. And the first love is the love for each other. So, I mean, th the whole talking about, you know, what are your feelings about sex really will open up, as I said, a sense of intimacy, which stimulates the serotonin. And then the next F is frequency. I mean, some people are very sexually motivated and other people aren't. Are you going to be compatible in terms of frequency? And that really needs to be discussed as well. And the third F is fantasy. And a couple who really discusses what their fantasies are, what they, you know, want, what their, you know, what their dreams are in terms of long-term sexual commitment. I mean, they will have that bonding hormone renew each and every time they discuss it. The research shows that the more people discuss sex, the more they have sex. Well, in all three of those things, it seems like even if you talk about this, this is something you want to go over with some level of frequency, right? Because all of those three things could change over time. Like, oh, you know, when we first got, got started, I loved it and we were doing it all the time. And then as that hormone starts to drop off, like, I don't mind that we're not doing it so much and I still enjoy it all the same. And then like, you just got to keep kind of rolling with and adapting to what you're doing. As long as you guys stay on the same page, you can at least have that communication, right? <laughs> Where you're like, we know these three things as they've changed over our years together. Absolutely. I mean, you know, bullseye, you don't just talk about it once. You know, you can have date nights where that's all you talk about is sex. I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience where you go into this fabulous restaurant and you look around the room and half the people are looking at their cell phone, not each other. What's that all about? Yeah. Did you even need to come here together? You just went to different restaurants and text each other. That would have been more, you know, exciting, right? Yeah. But remember what I said about the Gottman Institute and contempt? That's a form of contempt. There's no question it's a form of contempt. You know, in um, the novel, this young man who comes back from Afghanistan, he's inheriting this huge ranch in Montana. Eventually, he goes to Charleston, South Carolina to help an army buddy. Um, and he works in his his army buddy's friend's restaurant, mother's restaurant. And there's a scene in there where he's looking at this fabulous harbor with this amazing sunset. And the best table in the house is right next to the window where you've got this gorgeous view of the sunset and the harbor. And he looks over and this couple are staring at their phones. And then, you know, the scene is his internal dialogue about what does that mean, you know? But, um, you know, I am passionate about the fact that people who think they need divorce really need diversion before they decide to go that way. And there are so many opportunities on resources on the internet. Um, there are, there's like free seven day trials for premarital counseling, you know, on some of these sites. There are YouTube videos. I mean, 
if you are more of an introvert and you really feel uncomfortable about having a money talk date or a sex talk date and really talking about these issues, then watch a video together. You know, invite them. Look, I'm a little embarrassed to talk about it, but we need to explore these different things before we make a lifelong commitment and we both make a mistake. And if you explain that you're doing out of caring for that person, they will understand. And if they don't understand, you know, that's a huge red flag. Well, and we live in a a world right now, we have more free resources than literally any time period that came before us. And we seem to forget that every time something goes wrong or we need help doing something or help bringing up a topic or just research in general, we forget that we have this vast connection to the entire world and all of history. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that there are actually free resources, I mean, not to take that, uh, not to take up what's available when you know the plane you're about to get on only has a 50% chance of landing in its destination is really, really very foolish. And I, I really, you know, it's interesting that divorces were on a decline until COVID. And once COVID came, and of course there were no divorces during COVID, not because people were happy, but guess why? No divorces. Because we couldn't get in to file them. Bingo. Yeah. The courts were closed. And if you did file them, it didn't go anywhere. So, you know, it didn't go to fruition. So it didn't count as a divorce. But now that the courts are opened up and there's a floodgate of divorces and um, most of the divorces are a result of undisclosed things like debt and the divorces among the people who are, are um of short marriage duration, where they didn't have asked these questions. You know, the average American is divorcing, is uh, getting married between 28 and 32. And they're coming to the marriage with, guess what kind of debt? Student. Mm -hmm. Student debt, the average is $30,000. Credit card debt, the average is between five and $10,000. And instead of paying that off, they're they're following the Disneyfication of weddings, which is now the big, you know, I mean, that's the big thing to do, right? I mean, have the big, huge party, you know, put it up on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and do videos and, you know, hope it goes viral for what reason, I'm not sure. And meanwhile, sitting there in the background is a big huge load of debt that you're going to have to discuss with the person you just married who doesn't really know about that debt so i mean one of the big things that you do need to talk about and we talked a little bit about money what are you you know are you a spender are you a saver and are you coming to this marriage with debt So people were finding out a lot more about debt, about late notices that they wouldn't otherwise have, you know, have 
known about. You know, they started working for home. Things started coming to the house instead of the office. Um, and the other big cause of divorce were arguments over vaccines, whether to be vaccinated, whether to have the children vaccinated, whether to mask, whether to send the children to school. And there was an uptick in divorces over whether the virus was real or not. A lot of conspiracy theories cause divorces. So um, there's a big uptick in divorce. And then there's also 31% increase in domestic violence during the pandemic. Now, the police still, I mean, they did work during COVID. God bless them. Um, and they did intercede in domestic violence cases, thank God. And there were judges available through, you know, um, tele uh, tele-legal services uh, to adjudicate those cases. But those were really the only cases that were moving through the courts, the family law court system. And that sort of now declined since COVID is not really over, but it seems to be, quote, under control, whatever that means. I know more people getting COVID now than I did during the pandemic. But anyway. Um, yeah, it's some of those... I mean, I have to imagine some of this is a little unforeseen. Like, it's hard to have a a discussion about what to do if we all get locked in our houses during a pandemic, if you don't know that that's coming. But, like, you can have some of this discussion way ahead of time. Oh, you? absolutely. You know, it's, you said something, or I'm not sure, we, we touched on prenuptial agreements. And the myth about prenuptial agreements causing the divorce has been, you know, dispelled time and time again through the research and otherwise. Um, and some people look at a prenuptial agreement as untying the knot before you tie it. But many other people, um, including domestic relations lawyers, look at making sure the knot does not fray. And having these discussions before you get married, you don't have to execute a prenuptial agreement to go through this exercise. But this is the smartest thing you can possibly do. You know, um, I'm at the age now where I've done my estate planning for my children and my grandchildren. The biggest shift in this wealth in this country will be when my generation dies and our children inherit. So when you, even if you feel as if your parents don't have much, you may be really surprised, depending upon the age of your parents. Many parents don't tell their children really what their wealth is for many reasons, because they don't want them resting on their laurels and not working hard. They want them to make their own money. And I've had so many clients come to me so upset that they inherited this huge amount of wealth that they were unaware they were gonna inherit. They didn't have a prenuptial agreement to exclude it. Now in the state that I practiced in Pennsylvania, inherited assets in many circumstances were separate. But if you commingle them, if you get a million dollars as an inheritance and you put that in a commingled savings account it becomes marital and you split it. You get divorced, she or he takes half, they remarry, 
they marry somebody else and they spend that money on the, the, the other person's children or their lifestyle when the parent really wanted that money to go to you and to their grandchildren. But poor estate planning did not take care of that. So when you talk about prenuptial agreements today, you have to bear in mind that you need to consider that you may inherit something. You know, if one of your parents has a retirement account, you may inherit that entire retirement account. If they have a house, especially if you're living on the West Coast, you know, that they bought for $300,000, you know, 50 years ago, I can't even imagine what it would be worth now. And, you know, yes, you're probably going to get taxed on it, but you're still going to get a chunk of money. So is that going to be separate? Or is your spouse going to slip into a negligee and talk you into putting it into a joint account? Yeah, it's something I had never considered because, you know, I always think about prenuptial agreements and I think most people see them as like, oh, well, it's only for people who are coming into the marriage with something and never considered like, oh, yeah, I'm not coming into the marriage with anything, but I have, you know, some very well-off parents and if they die... I don't want everything they left me to go into my partner when they leave the marriage. Well, and that's that happens so many times, so many times. And unless you have some of these hard questions, you know, it's really interesting that you raise that point because so many times, uh, unless you have the heart to heart about money, you don't really put it together that the person that you're planning on marrying or being with, moving in with, has alternative motives. You may not be cognizant of the fact that your parents are wealthy or well-to-do, but they are. If they come from a very low socioeconomic background and they come to your house for Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner and they see the water goblets and the, you know a different setting of silverware or or placemats and and place settings of china they're looking around and that's not something they've ever had so in their mind they're thinking well you know this person if i partner up with this person i'm going to be much better off than if i'm by myself and you can really ferret those things out if you have these hard conversations and speaking of um Thanksgiving. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, and you may know you may know this already, that the time between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day is known as proposal season. 95% of Americans get engaged during this period of time. Wow, so a lot higher than I would have expected. That's really so if you are, if you are, well, thanks to you know Madison Avenue. Um, if you are um, dating someone and you're going to Thanksgiving dinner, um, and even if you're not dating someone, you know, there are questions that you ought to be prepared to answer because they're going to ask you. And if you role play with the person that you're going to invite to Thanksgiving dinner with your family, um, you know, you may want to consider it. It's going to be so. When are you going to get engaged? Uh, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? You know, where where are you 
guy's going to live. Um, and if you're not, uh, there's a commercial on TV now getting ready for Thanksgiving and Christmas where this young woman walks into obviously a Thanksgiving holiday family party and she walks by her two aunts who are standing in the doorway and they look at each other and they look at her and say, still single girl? <laughs> so you're going to be asked if you're not dating, you know, why you're not dating or, you know, what you're doing to date. And, you know, you may want to come up with some funny retorts, you know, once again, guess who has a lot of them on the internet? A lot of resources. All you have to do is Google you know, Thanksgiving dinner questions, you know, how to respond to difficult questions with humor. And you can get a zillion answers. Yeah, I'm sure you could read a doctoral level thesis on the perfect response, or you could get like a funny one-liner. You can find everything in between those two. Absolutely. No, you can find a lot of you know, a lot of funny one-liners. And even if you uh, do quotes about that, you know, do uh, quotes about funny responses to questions about marriage and, you know, there's lots of resources. You have to really keep your sense of humor about the whole thing. It's not doom and gloom. I mean, there's so many opportunities for people now to save their marriages when they start to go sideways. You know, I mean, the whole landscape of romantic relationships has changed so dramatically that we almost need a Sherpa to help us through it. And you really need to do the research. You need to really seriously ask the hard questions before you get married. That will give you a springboard to continue the communication after you get married. Communication is the biggest cause of divorce. It's the biggest cause of contempt in a marriage. Poor communication, poor ability to speak to someone as if you love them is a big problem. And there's actually a book, um, and forgive me, I don't remember the author of the book. I think the title was um, Speak to Me as If You Love Me. And I recommended that book to so many people. And um, I also include and give her credit for it in my upcoming nonfiction book, The Malnourished Marriage. There are so many resources for people out there. They give you, um, you know, examples of, of ways to open a conversation. If you're reluctant, if you're more of an introvert, if you don't want to hurt, get hurt. You know, arguments, it's not about what you argue. It's about how you argue. Whether you argue as if you're in battle or you argue as if you're in love and you're trying to solve a problem, there's a big difference. If you've been attacked as a child when you raise an issue, if you've been told to shut up, um, if your opinions have been discounted, then when you get in an argument with somebody you love, you automatically and, and you, you, there's a conflict, you automatically feel this sense of reluctance because you don't want to be hurt. You don't want to be abandoned. You don't want to be told that your opinion doesn't matter, which is what happened when you were a child. So it's important to understand you bring to your relationship as an adult, 
what you learned as a child. And none of us, none of us come through childhood without some issues, without some dark side of the moon, as Mark Twain said. And discussing that honestly with someone and putting in a putting in a phrase such as, you know, hey, you know, Mark Twain said everyone has a dark side of the moon. What's yours? It's different than saying, so tell me what's wrong with you. Yeah, tell me about your problems. <laughs> you know, like what problems? And they're like, you know, this all the stuff that makes you uh less than perfect. And you're like, well, I don't know if I like where this conversation's headed. <laughs> Well, yeah. And, you know, my goal is to avoid that. You know, it, you, you can have, I mean, let's face it, you're going to get pissed off. Yeah. There are going to be times when the fight becomes a real argument. You, you know, I never <laughs> want an argument or fight to become physical between spouses. I mean, that that's definitely the de death knell. And I've represented so many women, and I mean high-functioning women, doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs, heads of corporations and financial institutes who have been hit during a marriage and stayed because they were embarrassed, because they didn't want people to know what had happened to them. And there are resources for you if that's happened to you. Leave. Leave because it's going to happen again. And if it's happening in your house and there are children, they know that it's happening. Don't think because it's not in front of them, they don't know. Kids are Geiger counters and they will know. So my advice is that if your communication styles are so disparate before you get married, this girl or this man is not a reclamation project. It's not going to get any better. As you said earlier, I've heard the same thing so many times. I thought they'd change. You will never make another human being change, ever. The change has to come from them. And if you don't motivate them to change, they're not going to change. And the way to motivate them to change is to infuse dopamine in their brain so that they find you someone who they want to bond with again, someone who they find attractive again, someone they find sexually desirable again. I mean, it's, you know, people say it's all in your head. It is all in your head. And renewing that risk is by doing new things. Even approaching somebody with a new style of communication. If your partner or spouse doesn't want to look at the YouTube channel, doesn't want to look at some of these free, amazing resources on the internet where you can coach with a psychologist for seven days for free before you decide to sign up for their plan. You can cancel the trial at any time. Now, I never give out those sites because I don't want to be accused of, since I'm an attorney, <laughs> I don't want to be accused of, you know, if it goes sideways for somebody, them coming back to me because I recommended a site, which can happen, by the way. 
So it's not that I'm being um, stingy with information. I'm just, with all due respect, protecting myself. Um, but there are sites. I mean, it's so easy to find them. Um, you can find them yourself. Just Google free seven-day trials for premarital or postmarital counseling. And um, I highly recommend that if your spouse or partner doesn't want to do that with you, you know, if one person changes, the whole relationship can change. So maybe they don't want to do the work, but if you feel that you've got kids, you've got a lifestyle, you know, your relationship is going sideways, but you still feel something for the other person, you can do it yourself. I mean, do you agree that if one person changes, it can change the relationship? Yeah, of course. I mean, there is like, there has to be that what point does it bend and what point does it break, right? right? Like exactly. I can do an amount of work to really like make my relationship happen and flourish by myself. But if at no point in time does my partner ever get involved or ever become a positive influence on the relationship, like you gotta, you know, you have to cut uh, eventually, you have to cut away. And that is kind of like the crux of what we're talking about is have these hard conversations before you get engaged, before you get married, so that you can know if this is right for you. And then while you're married, like continue to stay on with each other, right? Like hit all of the marks, have all the conversations. Don't, don't lose each other in the fog that is our every day. And then if you get to a point where like, you know, especially if you were in a, a relationship where there's like physical and emotional aggression, like just leave. If you've reached the end of your relationship, it has to be the end for you. You can't just stay there and think, well, maybe it'll get better. Like, again, you can't change that. That's that person. And if they won't change, you have to leave for you. Absolutely. And that's, that is part of the theory that if one person changes, the relationship changes because of that other person, you've made all that effort and that other person still hasn't changed, then the relationship has changed. It's over yeah. and it's time to bail. And, you know, enough about worrying about the economics of it. That's a whole different uh, discussion. And the economics will work themselves out. Honestly, they really will. I mean, there's definitely going to be a change in lifestyle, definitely because the money will be different. Um, with respect to children, that's an enormous uh, problem. But people today are far more likely to try to mediate, come up with parenting plans than they were before. When, you know, I had these children, I mean, they were young adults when they came to my office for their divorces. But I mean, I can't even tell you the thousands of custody cases I've tried in my career. I mean, people just fought over custody either because, you know, one party wanted more custody time to reduce the support they were going to have to pay or whatever. I mean, it was insanity. And no matter how you counseled somebody that, you know, the courts don't really listen to what you think is a big issue in this case. You know, you really need to go to a psychologist, have the psychologist tell you what they recommend for this child, have the child looked at by a psychologist. You have to address the needs of this child or you are going to be paying for it the rest of your lives. I can't tell you the number of my clients who would come back to me 
you know, in tears and heartbroken. Their kids were in rehab for the third time. Let's face it, people are going to self-medicate. Remember what we talked about? We're made to look for happiness. We're made not only to look for survival and to procreate the species. We look for connection. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, I think everybody knows about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, let's face it. Um, and we are absolutely innate through our genetic stru structure looking for happiness. And if we don't find that, we look somewhere else. I'll leave your audience with the last analogy that I'll give. And people used to come to my office and tell me that they just couldn't do it anymore. They were tired of the same fight over and over again. And, you know, they, they, they just didn't know what to do. And they were trying to make a decision about a divorce or a separation or what to do. And they would come for advice. And I'd say, you sound like you're a McDonald's banging on the counter. I want a steak. I want a steak. I want a steak. Who looks like the idiot? You're in McDonald's. You either satisfy yourself on hamburger the rest of your life or move on to another restaurant that serves steak. And they seem to understand what I was saying. If you can't handle what's happening in your life and it's causing you stress, and stress is cortisol. And as a nurse, that's why I talk about all of these you know, once a nurse, always a nurse. And everyone, every nurse I know and everyone who knows a nurse will tell you, once a nurse, always a nurse. So I have this holistic approach towards helping people in divorce. I had that throughout my career, which was made me so successful. But cortisol is a killer. I mean, it causes heart disease. It causes hyperlipidemia. Uh, it causes so many, it causes obesity, it causes brain fog, it causes every possible thing that you feel when you're totally out of sync. And the cortisol is something that happens when you're in a relationship and you're totally unhappy. And as you said, you're the one who's been making all the changes. You're the one bang getting brain damage from banging your head against the, the wall, right? Nothing's happening. The other person isn't moving. So it's time to get out of McDonald's, realize you're not satiated on hamburger, and move on. It will work out. It always does. It will work out after the divorce, especially today. People have so many more opportunities and when I got divorced the first time, but there's life after divorce. You know, my my um, mantra is eat, drink, and remarry. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good to leave people on because we've certainly given them a lot to think about. And if you're one of those people that is like just getting into a very serious relationship and you're encroaching on engagement season, like. You know, maybe time to take some notes, ask some questions, have these hard conversations before they get a lot harder later. <laughs> um, but I wanted to give you some time to say, like, you know, where people can find you and these books that you have and <clears throat> everything else. Well, thank you. Yeah, they can find me at 
uh, Nancy, N-A-N-C-Y, Perpal, P-E-R-P-A-L-L, pronounced per like the cat, Paul like the name, perpal.com. And that's my website. And you can find the blogs, a lot of resource information. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I also have my book posted there around which all things bend. That's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, and where um, books are sold, anywhere books are sold. My nonfiction book, um, The Malnourished Marriage, Five Essential Emotional Nutrients for a Healthy Relationship will be out next year. And hopefully your host will invite me back and then I can talk about that in more detail. So of course. Now I appreciate this immensely. I'd love to have you back to chat more when that comes out. And then if anyone goes and finds these books or, you know, depending on when you're listening, you find one book, you find two books, no matter what you do, leave a good review for them because it helps boost these authors up. And then if you enjoyed this book. Other people will now find the book and they get to enjoy it. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me. I really, I enjoyed speaking to you and I hope your audience learned a lot and is better for it. Do you feel better or more informed having listened to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If so, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. If you really liked it, remember to subscribe for more episodes and check out the nearly 100 episode backlog that I've built up. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do for episode 100, but you let me know what you'd like to hear by reaching out and emailing me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or wherever else you find me. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience as well. If you're looking to start your own podcast, I'd highly, highly recommend using the host service that I use, Podbean. You can find almost literally everything you could ever need to start an amazing show of your own at podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot They have incredible tools to make recording, hosting, cross-posting, promoting and even monetizing incredibly easy. They're also built with an awesome support team behind the scenes that has always answered any question I've had in blazing fast time. I feel unbelievably lucky to be a featured podcast on their platform and the opportunity they're giving me to reach a whole new world of audience. Enough with the sappy stuff. The November ranking updates as we near the final week are... Number one, the United States, with California, Pennsylvania, and Oregon as the top states. Number two, the United Kingdom. Number three, Australia, now led by New South Wales. Number four, Canada, with Alberta holding top province. And number five, Sweden, still just barely led by Skane. That's it for today. Happy Thanksgiving to you, happy birthday to me, and I'll see you all Monday with tips on making sure we can reach old age without all the difficulties. Bye bye.